0: You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Michael Davidson, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Illuminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association.
1: Today our guest is Dr. Carl Oranger, Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He's also the Director of the Lipid Clinic and Preventative Cardiovascular Medicine Program at University Hospitals Case Medical Center. Dr. Oranger currently serves as the president for the Midwest chapter of the National Lipid Association. He's going to speak to us today about improving adherence to lipid-lowering therapies, and in particular, not just improving adherence, but a slightly different spin, how to help those patients who are either underinsured or uninsured, a problem that we all have in our practices. So, Carl, thank you very much for agreeing to speak with us today on Lipid Luminations.
0: That's my pleasure, Alan.
1: So maybe we could start by you telling us a little bit about the scope of the problem. We all have patients who have insurance and don't want to spend their money on their cholesterol-lowering drugs, though interestingly, drugs for erectile dysfunction are never too expensive for them. But seriously, when we talk about those patients who actually are underinsured or uninsured and have serious financial issues, how big of a percent of the population is that? And I know you're in Cleveland. Maybe you could tell us about the Cleveland area.
0: Well, the problem is of very substantial magnitude, and although there are no exact numbers, primarily because the question, of course, is is what is considered underinsured, but uh, suffice to say that this is a problem that affects millions of patients across the United States. It tends to be more of a problem in inner cities, but because of difficulties related to the economy, many people have lost their jobs, find themselves in positions where they're no longer able to pay for their medical care or medications. And so it's a problem that all of us face in our daily practices, whether we're practicing in an urban area, suburban area, or in rural areas. So, And at Case Medical Center, where I do my practice, I have a wide variety of patients, some of whom are certainly in the poverty status, but many of whom also have been working on a regular basis, lost their jobs, and now find themselves in a position where they're having difficulties paying for their medications. And uh, this kind of piqued my interest in this, and I began a literature search and tried to get together some evidence-based information on these patients and what we might do to better serve those patients so that we could protect them from the development of cardiovascular disease.
1: You're such a good scientist. I have great respect for you. When you get a a project you dig in and uh, so th- I'm fascinated to have the opportunity to talk to you about this particular one. What about the Medicare population? I get the biggest complaints though I'm not in a urban area from many of the Medicare patients who are in the donut hole for example. Did you look at that group of people also?
0: Yes, the answer is the donut hole is is a big problem and that is what has led us to try to at least think of ways that we can make a difference in those patients. And the biggest issue, of course, in those patients tend to be ways that we can address cost to improve adherence. In general, I found that the best approach, number one, is to prescribe generic medication whenever possible. And uh, sometimes that does mean compromising the degree of LDL cholesterol lowering that we might see. On the other hand, it is better that a patient be on a statin in a reasonable dose than be on no statin, even when you want... A greater degree of LDL cholesterol lowering, you still feel that the patient is going to benefit from statins when they are found to require the medication. So number one is whenever possible in those patients, prescribe generic medication. Number two is we employ pill splitting whenever it's, it's appropriate. Even though we can't be sure in non-scored pills that our patients are receiving exactly the doses they need, the results are generally close enough that you can feel pretty good that you're doing the job. Of course, we always try to adhere to formularies to provide covered medication whenever the patient does have a formulary plan that is that is covered and then we try to provide assistance whenever possible by providing pharmaceutical company coupons samples in selected circumstances and also recommending low cost drug ass- accessing options ways that we do that for example is that we encourage patients to look at some of the larger pharmacies such as Walmart Target And other large pharmacy chains, where patients can receive a one-month supply of a pretty good dose statin, generally for four dollars, and for three months, ten dollars. So, for example, a patient can receive simvastatin forty milligrams and get roughly forty percent reduction in LDL cholesterol. And if you can accomplish that for four dollars a month, you've done a pretty good job. You can do that at Target, and they're also uh, online approaches that can be used there are different sites so for example one is called healthwarehouse.com where you can get 30 tablets of simvastatin for example for $3.50 you can move to 90 tablets for $9.50 and uh, that's certainly something that many patients can't afford even when, many patients can't afford even when they're in the donut hole we try to recommend those types of approaches there's also an interesting approach that we're sometimes able to use in selected patients depending upon the circumstances, and that is there are drug repository programs. And these programs actually are available in 38 states, and they provide for the use of recycled or unused prescription drugs in single-use sealed packaging from nursing homes, state programs, or other medical facilities. In each state, there are pretty strict guidelines that assure patient safety, and this provides an opportunity for many patients to actually get access to brand-name drugs For example, the state of Ohio, where I live, our state was the first one to develop the uh, drug repository program, and this was done in 2002, but we have access for patients who meet the criteria, and that is, these are patients who, they actually have to be a a patient in a non-profit clinic, they have to have no active third-party drug reimbursement coverage, and they have to be a resident of our state, but... For example, they can get any of the brand name drugs that you could prescribe, rosuvastatin, atorvastatin, ezetimibe, any of these drugs can be obtained up to a 30-day supply for about $7.40, and 90 days of a generic drug can be provided for $7.40 as well. Now, there's a postage charge usually about $5, but again, this is a great service to patients in our state, and, and it is available in 37 other states.
1: That's great. I wasn't aware of that program. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lipid Illuminations on ReachMD Radio XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. Today, our guest is Dr. Carl Oranger, Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He's also the director of the Lipid Clinic and Preventative Cardiovascular Medicine Program at University Hospitals Case Medical Center. Dr. Oranger currently serves as the president for the Midwest chapter of the National Lipid Association. What about the pharmaceutical companies themselves? We have one nurse in our clinic, her only job, and and it's not for the lipid clinic, but for the whole practice is to take those patients who have a limited income. The cutoff for many companies is $28,000 a year, and then they can fill out forms that allow for the company to provide what they call patient assistance and basically send them free medication. Is that something that you looked into in your review, and, and who qualifies for that?
0: These generally are patients who do not have drug coverage or do not have access to insurance for their drugs. We're checking now, but we've actually looked at about 10 or 12 different companies that have different drug programs that enable people to get lower cost drugs. The good news is is that it is accessible to patients. The bad news is that each company has fairly extensive forms that have to f- be filled out and if you search in the literature there are actually they've discussed this in various places in the literature but unfortunately most people find the forms to be relatively onerous and uh, difficult to fill out, and if you forget one box of one form, the pharmaceutical company will send it back to your patient, and the patients get frustrated, and they just stop doing it. it. This doesn't tend to work as well in people with lower levels of education because they just find that the forms are impossible to fill out. So while the good news is is that these programs are available, the bad news is, is that the access to these programs is in reality quite limited definitely a function of the patient's educational level and very, very hard long-term to maintain an ongoing stream of, of medication because just because the forms are difficult for many patients to fill out.
1: Yeah, so let me throw out there that our experience was the same. However, having one nurse who became pretty much an expert in how to help fill out those forms helped us make a fairly big jump in the number of patients that we could receive the help with. So I I might just suggest to our audience that you get somebody in your office familiar with the process and put them in charge of filling out those forms for the patients. Let's talk about beyond the accessibility of medications for the underinsured, and I think you covered that eloquently, the different options available. And I think probably what I got from that is I ought to check and see what's available in my own state. There's probably some things going on that I don't even know about. But the other question would be, what about the lifestyle modification issues? Do you see a difference based on socioeconomic status about willingness to or even the affordability of for such things as a low-fat diet or regular exercise?
0: There are a number of major predictors to poor adherence to medical treatment. These include, among others, there are psychological issues, especially depression, which tends to uh, sabotage your best uh, intentions. The presence of cognitive impairment, people just not being able to process the information is often a problem. Patients who feel that because the disease is asymptomatic, it's not that important, that's another issue. Patients who just don't follow up appropriately in your clinic or your office, people who run into medication side effects are less likely to adhere long-term If they don't believe that the treatment is really going to make a difference, that reduces adherence. If they just don't understand what the illness is all about, if they don't have a good doctor-patient relationship with you, that can certainly impair your patient's ability to take medication long-term. If they don't have the money to get to your office, I mean, I've seen that situation in, in the number of patients. And certainly, if you see a patient with multiple missed appointments, you know that that patient is unlikely to adhere to any medication regimen. Also, complex treatment regimens tend to sabotage you too. You know, if you have patients who have to take many different medications at many different times of the day, or if there are multiple instructions related to a medication, that can also be a big problem. And then, of course, I think one of the biggest problems is uh, either the patients can't afford the medication, or or they can't afford the copay. And so, when you kind of consider all of those. Issues and then, especially with regard to the question of how does this impact in patients with lower socioeconomic status, there have actually been studies to show that people who are in the lower socioeconomic groups consume more white flour products, potatoes, beans, organ meats. They eat a lot of fried foods, whole milk, animal and vegetable fat. They eat a lot of sugars, sweets, and cakes, and sweetened beverages and beer. And unfortunately, all those tend to have adverse effects either on cholesterol or triglycerides or both. Another problem that we relate to in people with very limited incomes is that many of them will go to fast food restaurants because they can get the food quickly and relatively cheaply. So there are dollar menus and some of the bigger chains, as you know, whether it's fast food burgers or fried chicken places, but there are these dollar menus which tend to draw people with very limited incomes into their doors. Another issue is recreational activity in people with lower socioeconomic status. First of all, it's been shown that living in more disadvantaged areas is associated with higher body mass index, and many of these patients get less recreational activity because they have less access to public places to exercise, there's a perception of less neighborhood safety and kind of public disorder where they live, and there's a higher perception of neighborhood crime and unattended dogs and unpleasantness of neighbors and untrustworthy neighbors. The problem is further compounded by issues related to smoking. You know, uh, there's a very clear link between socioeconomic status and smoking. It's been shown, for example, that more than 30% of adults below the poverty level smoke as compared to about 19% at or above just the poverty level.
1: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Carl Oranger, Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He's also the director of the Lipid Clinic and Preventative Cardiovascular Medicine Program at University Hospitals Case Medical Center. Dr. Oranger currently serves as the president for the Midwest chapter of the National Lipid Association. Thanks for spending time with us this week on Lipid Luminations.
0: That's my pleasure, Alan. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.